Welcome to Women, Conscription and War, a podcast series focused on the actions, motivations and experiences of Melbourne women in the anti-Vietnam War and anti-conscription protests between 1965 and 1972. In case you haven't listened to the introduction to this project and where I give some history of the Vietnam War and conscription in Australia, a few things to keep in mind. First, this is in no way an attack on Vietnam veterans. I am the daughter of one myself. This is filling a gap, not opposing or challenging. Second, I don't necessarily agree with everything my interviewees say, so don't get angry at me for reporting their views. Third, I don't always give the name of the person who's speaking when I use excerpts from interviews. They're always credited on the website, which you'll find at womenconscriptionwar.com. You'll also find complete footnotes for the other work that I've used. Lastly, please note that I have edited these interviews for use in the podcast for clarity and to really hone in on the relevant ideas. And I remember going to a party at Jean McLean's place where we all had to fill in a falsie. We had to sort of fill in a registration slip with false names, addresses, details to just um, make things as difficult as possible for the authorities. What mm. sorts of people were at the fill in a falsie occasion? Yeah, my age or older. I mean, I was one of the really young ones at that stage. I would have just been in my 20s. Jean would have been seven or eight years older. But Labour people, because the Maclean's moved in an arts circle, there are quite a lot of well-known and creative people there. There was a, there were a lot of people there. It wasn't the only Phil and Policy party that she had, I'm sure, but it's the only one I went to. And it was great fun. We drank and we, <laughs> we let our imaginations run riot. This episode is something of a miscellany. It's basically things that were really important, but which haven't fit neatly into one of the other episodes. For instance, it's obviously important to mention the story of Peggy Summers and her hunger strike, as well as the fill-in-a-falsy parties mentioned at the start of the episode. We'll basically travel chronologically across this episode, looking at some of the different ways that women in Melbourne expressed their disapproval of both the Vietnam War and conscription. I want to acknowledge up front that I haven't included every single instance of women protesting the war and conscription, because over eight years, a lot of things happened. Many, many women were fined, both for their actions defying Bylaw 418, that Melbourne City Council regulation that said you couldn't distribute pamphlets on Melbourne streets, and for breaking federal laws. Several women went to jail some just overnight and some for a few days at a time. There were women in every street demonstration in Melbourne and Melbourne women also participated in demonstrations in Canberra, like when a large group, mostly made up of students, sat down in front of the lodge. Yes, that's right, the Prime Minister's residence. The idea for this episode is to give a sense of the range of activities that women participated in. So you'll hear from Caroline, Carol, Jean, Sue, Frances, Jan, Marion and Anne. They were born between 1932 and 1949. Marion, 
born in 1932, was in her 30s throughout this period, while the youngest person you'll hear from in this episode was Sue, who only turned 20 towards the end of the period. We start in 1966 with Miss Peggy Summers. On the 28th of March 1966, Peggy attended a meeting at the Kew Town Hall at which Prime Minister Harold Holt was speaking. She was mentioned in the newspaper, although she's not named, in the age at least, for twice trying to disconnect the microphone and then actually throwing a handful of marbles at Prime Minister Holt. A report in a newsletter from the Youth Campaign Against Conscription says that she was actually fired from her job for that particular stunt. A couple of months later, Peggy was back in the newspapers because she went on a 48-hour hunger strike on the steps of the US consulate. She's 37 years old at this point, according to the paper, and involved with the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. When she arrived, she actually gave a letter of protest to the receptionist at the consulate before starting her protest, explaining that she was opposing Australian support for the current South Vietnamese regime. There's an article in The Herald about Peggy's actions as well, from the 7th of June, with the headline, Burn Yourself, Men Told Hunger Striker. The article explains that two men offered her, Peggy, a drum of petrol and suggested that she burn herself on her first night on the steps of the consulate. I can only assume that the men were inspired for this particular piece of taunting by the reporting on the immolation of the Buddhist monk Thuc Quan Duc in June of 1963 in South Vietnam. The Herald newspaper also reports that the Consul General had sent Peggy a cup of coffee that morning. A report in The Guardian, a communist newspaper, from the 16th of June 1966, reports that there had been a five-day vigil outside the consulate, starting with Peggy's hunger strike and then continuing with at least one other woman, Maureen Christie, also going on a hunger strike. That article alleges that Maureen was punched and knocked to the ground in the process of helping someone else who was being attacked. I can't find any other information about these hunger strikes, which I honestly find a bit remarkable. Peggy Summers continued her anti-war actions in 1967 by travelling to Hanoi, the capital of North Vietnam. She wrote a report on this trip for The Beacon, which is the journal of the Melbourne Unitarian Peace Memorial Church. In that article from May 1967, she described Australia's participation in the war as, quote, a vicious, fascist-like attack, and says her purpose in travelling to Hanoi was to apologise to Vietnamese people, to assist them in any peaceful capacity, and to remain in Hanoi for as long as the United States continued bombing it. The US bombing continued for several more years, but I've found no further information about what happened to Peggy Summers. Also in 1966, and involving the US consulate, is this action from Carol. I remember the, the night we got news that the, the first Australian conscript had been killed over there. A friend and I 
well, some friends and I went round to and were sticking <laughs> tiny little labels on the letterbox of the American consulate, which was then in, um, is it Commercial Road? But anyway, one of those streets. And one friend and I got nabbed by the cops in the act. <laughs> okay, so my first question is, what was on the stickers? What? Oh, I don't remember. Just something about, you know, getting out of Vietnam, I suppose. Right. My second question is, Is that was that like late at night that you're going around the streets quite, in the dark? Quite late. <laughs> and, yeah, well, we just targeted the American consulate with that, but yeah, with a little tiny sticker, putting it on the letterbox. This, this, this was the great act of <laughs> resistance. And yeah. then you got arrested. Yep, yep. And did you ha- did they take you to jail? Did you get charged? Yeah, we got charged. Um, one other person and I got taken to the police station nearby and uh, we were questioned and our fingerprints taken and we were charged and uh, so I've got, a, I've got a criminal record. <laughs> and yes, it was no big deal. They didn't bash us up or anything. <laughs> We move now to 1968. In 1968, Jean McLean of Save Our Sons, and I've got a whole episode on Save Our Sons if you're interested, was an Australian delegate to a Paris conference for women from belligerent nations. And then there was a conference in 1968, the Paris meeting. We had a fundraising thing. Our movement decided that they'd seen me. And I said, yeah, well, let's try and we'll raise, you know, have a fundraiser. Uh, But we didn't have a lot of time. It was in April, I think we had to make the decision. Anyway, so I said, well, we'll send it out. And if we get two thirds of the money in the first week or whatever, we'll go ahead. Otherwise, we'll send the money back uh, because we didn't have the time and I didn't have the resources. So anyway, I went, it went very, very well and all the money came in and they said, oh, yeah, it's going very well, but we've got one cheque here, somebody's being funny. And I said, why? And they said, oh, it's signed by Nugget Coombs, you know, who was like the signatory on the banknotes. I said, yeah, yeah, he's against the wall. And they thought, no, this is ridiculous, yeah. a cheque with his signature. But it actually was. But anyway, so we raised the money, so off I went. Went via the Soviet Union. There was a paper called the, oh, anyway, Tribune or something. They, they had a, a person in Moscow and they came and picked me up at the airport because I was going to Paris, went via Moscow, which was very interesting. I met a lot of people there. Anyway, then off I went to Paris. The conference was in a fantastic chateau. <laughs> Never seen anything like that. Anyway, so they were all women from belligerent nations. The conference was called that. And uh, out of that connection, those connections, it also uh, got involved in the moratorium, which was, Mm. uh, you know, the movement started there and then came here. But it was there that the Vietnamese women, Madame Binh from the south and Madame Cam from the north, invited me to visit 
North Vietnam, which I did, um, which was a pretty incredible exercise. How long was the conference for in Paris? Was it just a few days? A week long. Yep. And was it organised meetings or just sort of hanging well, around with yeah, all the women? No, it, was, it was meetings. We discussed the various conscriptions and things in the different countries. The Japanese were good. There were quite a few of them there. They were very vocal. Yes, Did so you we, get to speak very much? We I only had one presentation. Uh, the rest of it were group like, meetings, trying to work out what to do and how to do it. But in Paris, at that conference, uh, I met Jean-Paul Sartre. He was running a draft resistance. He had this little <laughs> office in an old French building. That's and incredible. And we went up the stairs. But, you know, so I'm sitting there talking to Jean-Paul Sartre about draft resistance. <laughs> so it's a funny thing that happened. But he, he was just like everybody else. He's working away. And they were helping American soldiers get to Canada. So I say, maybe from Germany. Don't, I haven't really thought that out. I think they were, you know how the NATO troops are everywhere, Americans everywhere, and probably, probably they would have been soldiers who were being taken from there to Vietnam and then they'd go AWOL or before or after or they mm. go and and Sartre was helping to get you know keep them hidden and then to Canada to my astonishment i can find almost no information about this conference who organized it who else went nothing so there's a challenge for someone else to chase up so you went to Vietnam a couple of years later, was it? In 1969, oh, the just next year. The next year. Yeah. How long did you have in North Vietnam? Two weeks. Was it amazing? Oh. <laughs> it was, you know, I think twice about peering into a, a war zone now. <laughs> yep. didn't seem, I thought it was perfectly all right. Well, because they said, we'll keep you safe. And I thought, they're such nice people. They'd know what they were doing. And of course they did, but I travelled right up with the right up to the Chinese border and to Haiphong, something like yep. that. We're now in 1969, and of course that was Jean McLean again, discussing her visit to North Vietnam. Back in Melbourne in 1969, Sue McCulloch was leaving university and became one of the few women, or indeed people, who actually got paid for their contribution to the peace movement. In this next excerpt, you'll hear Sue mention her involvement with draft resistors, which is explored more in the episode about draft resistors. She also mentions having to roneo things, and roneoing is an early form of photocopying that's a lot more physically demanding than just pushing the buttons on a machine. I left university in 1960, I think 69, and got a job in the uh, anti-war headquarters, which was which became later the headquarters for the moratorium movement. And it was an organisation called the CICD Council. Of, oh gosh, I've got to remember what Something CICD International stood for. Cooperation and disarmament. Uh, and disarmament. Yeah, Council yeah. for International Cooperation and Disarmament, which had been 
it became a kind of natural organisational uh, structure, really, in which a lot of the or all of the Vietnam moratorium demonstrations were organised through because there's an awful lot of, you know, it's all very well to say people just go out on the streets, but to be effective as demonstrators, it was really important to have this kind of very boring office structure that was set up. And, you know, it taught me a lot of skills, I have to say. I think my pay was something like $25 a week or something. (laughs) But it was a really, it was a really very dynamic and very obviously very interesting time, and I actually learned a lot of skills, which um, just you know general office skills. Mm-hmm. You had to do everything from writing things to roneoing things off and organising the distribution of leaflets. It was a very big organisational job as well as a sort of political job, and as it evolved, we later set up a shop. Um, which I became the director of, called Superdub, <laughs> to raise to raise awesome. money for for the cause. And um, Peter Carey, who is a novelist, a you know, famous mm-hmm. novelist, he actually did the uh, graphics of this Superdub. I probably can't even find one of the original leaflets for Superdub, which is very annoying. Um, but it had a, you know, it had it, it, it got a lot of attention. We used to sell T-shirts and all sorts of um, items to raise money for the anti-war movement. So there was a lot about, you know, the the kind of infrastructure was really significant. So it was this odd job of being you know, like a nine-to-five office job um, mixed in with, I guess, really quite subversive activities (laughs) in terms of organising subversive activities, particularly around the draft resistors movement. My main occupation, which, of course, was not just nine-to-five, it involved, you know, weekends of um, organising car cavalcades as as things progressed down to um, various jails where some of the draft resistors had been caught and were in jail and it involved organising demonstrations and uh, bailing people out, Mm -hmm. being arrested myself many times and um, I had uh, 19 convictions. 1969 was also the year when the campaign to encourage young men not to even register for national service really hotted up. One of the things that CICD, the Campaign for International Cooperation and Disarmament, did was organise for statements to be printed in newspapers and elsewhere with the names of people who agreed with a statement defying the National Service Act. Doing this defying the National Service Act was actually an illegal act. So they're publishing basically a crime. In a box of CICD ephemera at the Melbourne University archive, I found a note from a young woman saying she can't help to organise events for CICD because her husband has deserted her and her baby, but she's still sending a dollar and her name for inclusion in the Statement of Defiance. And then, of course, there's the whole of 1969, <laughs> which was just, which began in January with the um, Don't Register campaign. Again, quite specifically seen as an act of um, civil disobedience yeah. that was illegal to urge young men not to register. 
So you involved in handing out pamphlets and talking to young men who might have been considering doing that? Uh, yes. So I was uh, along, you know, with um, Michael and Harry in particular, involved in organising that campaign in Melbourne. Yep. meant um, uh, writing leaflets and going down to the GPO to hand them out because the GPO was Commonwealth property and it was a Commonwealth Act that we were uh, protesting. So that then brought us into conflict with Melbourne City Council with the bylaw 418. So there was a whole lot of, you know, there was just days and days, days after, day after day after day, we would hand, hand out leaflets, get arrested, go back to the Centre for Democratic Action in Palmerston Street, run off more leaflets and repeat again the next day. So it was just an incredibly intense time. And um, initially what we were arrested for was the Bylaw 418. So in order to keep the attention on the don't register, you know, what why it was that we were doing this, we took to standing on the steps of the GPO because that was Commonwealth property. So there you had to be arrested for incitement yeah. under the Crimes Act. So, you know, that um, we were arrested on, under the Crimes Act and eventually we went to court for that. In, yeah, in fact, so that was... It was about January, February, and around May, I think, we went to court and were fined uh, $50 for incitement. And in retrospect, I think the magistrate felt he had no option but to convict us, but it was the, the minimum penalty that he could impose. So the Commonwealth appealed that. So even though we'd been to court and convicted, we didn't serve jail time for that because it was then on appeal. So I think I, I don't remember it ever going back to court, so it was just on appeal. But then, in, yeah, July that year, we were busy organising sit-ins at the National Service Office so you had a demonstration organised for the US consulate, but you also had this sit-in organised at the National Service Office, again, focusing specifically on conscription, but also specifically using civil disobedience strategies. And so, again, that, of course, we were arrested. I was also jailed that sit-in as well. So that was in September, September 69. After that, the rest of 1969, there was a lot of travel between Melbourne and Sydney and a lot of, you know, um, students from Michael and I and others from Melbourne going to Sydney to support the draft resistance there and vice versa. That last excerpt was from Frances Newell, and the Michael she mentioned is her husband, Michael Hamill Green, 
who was one of the more well-known draft resistors, and again, you can hear more about their experiences in the episode on draft resistors. The Harry she mentioned is Harry Van Moest, another significant activist in Melbourne. In 1971, a national anti-war conference was organised in Sydney from the 17th to the 21st of February. There were several Victorian delegates, and as far as I can tell, there were three Melbourne women who actually gave presentations. Pauline Mitchell spoke on Youth and the Anti-War Movement. Jill Jolliffe, who had been at Monash University, spoke on the Anti-War Movement and Revolutionary Social Change. Finally, Sandra Goldblum-Zerbo spoke on Locality Organising. I have no evidence for this, but I'd bet money that women were heavily involved in most, if not all, aspects of the organising of this conference too. Finally, some things that happened across multiple years. One of the more significant of those was attempts to ruin the administration of the National Service Act. At the start of this episode, you heard Caroline discussing her attendance at a fill-in-a-falsy party held by Jean McLean. These parties were one way in which people hoped to overwhelm the registration system. Lots of people would get together to fill in registration papers with false information. In his book, Draftsmen Go Free, Bob Skates, a draft resistor himself, notes that, quote, Anne McPherson got her horse registered. While the 2021 graphic novel Underground by Miranda Burton was partly inspired by the story of a wombat being registered for national service. Along with these fill-in-of-falsy parties, there were other, I guess, mundane things that women were also involved in. You've already heard from Sue with regard to CIC organisation. Here are a few more reflections along those lines. What other sorts of activities were you involved in? You know, was it was there pamphlets or letters, those sorts of things? Or were you more into the, I guess, the more active side of physically protest, protesting? Both. I never missed a demo if I could, which is why I always voted for demos being at 5 o'clock rather than <laughs> 2 o'clock. But I was also a writer of the we never signed any leaflets so I can't prove this but anyway I wrote a lot of leaflets co-wrote a lot of leaflets but worse than that we had the printer in Gestetner at our place so I typed all the leaflets everybody's leaflets I was the typist because the blokes despite the fact that they're the ones that get all the credit because they used to take the microphones and talk at the rallies and used to hand out the leaflets they never wrote that. They never typed them. They never printed them. Yeah. That was me. And because we had a passion for what was going on, we set our own needs aside and just did it. And I did put a curfew on 11.30 for bringing leaflets to be typed. But I do remember some chap coming at midnight and me saying, I have work tomorrow morning, 
um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a night person, so that mm. doesn't – staying up late didn't bother me. But getting up in the morning was always a struggle for me, <laughs> always. And so that's why I'd set the curfew. But I do remember someone coming at midnight and uh, saying that this, we need this leaflet done tonight. So I remember doing – typing a leaflet and then printing it <sighs> and probably finished about 2 a.m. because I wasn't a fast typist. This is the other thing. I was a two-finger typist. And I used to say, I'm not a typist, you know, get someone who can type fast. No, they used to bring them to me. So I'd laboriously type up these damn leaflets and being a perfectionist, I'd make sure that... The, uh, oh, and the other thing is you had to type on wax stencils. And if you made a mistake, you had to correct it with corrector fluid, this pink corrector fluid. So you'd have to correct it and then type over it and get the, you know, line it up perfectly yeah. so that it didn't look shit else. It's a hell of a lot of work. I don't know how I did it. Yeah. <laughs> did you keep up your, your writing and being involved with publications across that whole period? I think I did. I can't remember, but I, I mean, I've always written. I, I'm one of the editors of the Unitarian Beacon now. I've always written, but I can't remember. I used to write for the party and the newspaper. I can't really. My memory of it's not as sharp. The, the the pamphlets and so on that you were writing, did you hand those out on the streets like that communist newspaper back in? We did. We did. And one one day we did, <laughs> another lady and I went into a, I think it was the Manchester Unity Building in those days in Swanson Street. And there was an empty office up on the top floor and we took a whole wad of pamphlets and threw them out of the window to the crowd and and they just all went fluttering down. People were picking them up. It was great. Yeah. I I tell you, I was petrified. Uh, uh, I'm not brave. I was really scared to death that we were going to get arrested, but we didn't. Yeah. So how, how did you have the courage to do it then if you were so scared? I don't know. You just do, don't you? You do things. I grew up in the war in England in the Blitz of London and and you just do, don't you? You just mm. do. And I ended up working full-time in the peace movement uh, for quite some time. What was the organisation called? Who officially employed you? It was the Victorian Peace uh, Victorian Peace Council. And, and what, what yeah. job and, did you do and, within that? Uh, organised rallies, organised meetings, uh, had um, speaking speakers. I went. I spoke on the wharf a couple of times. How was that? Um, oh, it was scary, scary, because <laughs> I'm only five foot, and, of course, they couldn't see me, so they had to put this big crate up, and I had to stand on the crate and uh, I'd never spoken at a big meeting like that before. And, you know, Wolfies are big, tough guys, you know, and some of them were quite reactionary and called out, you know, go back to Russia and comments like that. And then the others were saying, shut up, let's hear what she's got to say. <laughs> I say I was petrified, yeah. But I did it. I, you know, I don't know if you've ever done – well, of course, you're a teacher, so you're used to speaking, but – when you get up in a, a scary place like that, you, you can hear your own heartbeat. Your it, 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 it heartbeat's so loud, you can hear it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I was, my mouth was dry and I thought I'm never going to be able to do this. 
But anyway, I did. So. And you said you did it a couple of times? I did, I did one wharf meeting and I did one at the Assembly Hall in Collins Street, right. which was packed to the rafters and... and um, and I remember I, I kept burping. Now, what happened was I, I had a headache because I was so anxious and somebody gave me a big tablety looking thing which was fizzy and then I started getting burps. Okay. <laughs> I thought I'm never going to be able to speak because I'm just going to burp all the time. But anyway, I did, yeah. But, yeah, it's a, it's very scary you, if your heart beats and your mouth's dry and, and you think, I wish I was anywhere but here. But, yes, you do it because you have to do it. And you were, you were speaking about things like why Australia's involvement in Vietnam was wrong, those sorts of issues. Yeah, why, why predatory wars are wrong and that people have a responsibility to fight against government policies if they believe they're wrong, yep. What sort of reaction did you get at Assembly Hall? Were they mostly people who were already on side, do you remember? Well, it's a bit hard to tell. I remember um, Joan Kerner was there and um, she came up to me afterwards and said, you should join the Labor Party. I said, no, way past that. But yeah, once you start speaking, then you're fine. Once you get you know, once you get over the first few words, then you're fine. But, yeah, the reaction was really thunderous. I, I was so chuffed. There was a little northern group moratorium movement that used to meet in Coburg, and we'd have Saturday morning little marches. The Coburg Post Office used to be in Sydney Road. It, then it got demolished when Australia Post sort of, whatever happened to it, semi-privatised and would go then just walking down without placards, have a meeting at the front of the post office, then walk down and up the other side and then go home. But have leaflets. And there were, at one stage, part of the campaign was stop work to stop the war. And I somehow got myself involved in going to a couple of meetings at lunchtime at, at lunch times, one I can remember was at the railways. Those poor blokes, I must have been totally bemused because I don't know if they stopped. I know, they probably didn't stop work, but they were very, very kind of receptive and kind and, <laughs> and listened to what I had to say. And they would have all been basically Labor men anyway. Yeah, to just to get spread the message whichever way you could do it, I think. So what sort of people were involved in your Saturday morning marching just ordinary old people so gordon bryant he had i don't know if you ever saw any pictures of him he's a he was a great big man mm. with a shock of white hair and he was quite uh, he was a really decent fella i think he was minister for aboriginal affairs in the whitlam government oh, or something that rings a bell. Yeah, yeah he was he was really a decent and he was part of the peace movement too so he gave a lot of support and just walked down one side up the other side and having had a talk in the beginning, off you go home. Yeah. Um, so just a Coburg moratorium group yeah. or something like yeah. that? I think it was northern, don't know if it was northern suburbs or the, just mm. the northern uh, moratorium group. Do you know yeah. how, like, 
Would that have just been advertised in the newspaper? No, it would have come from CICD. Okay, sure. I was, I mean, there was a Coburg Brunswick Peace Committee yep. that was already existing when I I moved into Coburg, which was the end of 1965. So there was a solid core of mm. peace activists um, who that had regular meetings. I don't know that they were monthly, but they probably during the Vietnam War they would have been pretty close to. And so it would involve writing letters or, you know, having um, standing outside maybe churches on a Sunday with your peace, peace protests and stuff yep. like that. Finally, let me mention the women who over several years put their names to full-page spreads in various newspapers where they announced their defiance of the National Service Act. This was, as I said earlier, an illegal act. Ladies, that was a bold move. Thanks for listening to this episode of Women, Conscription and War. If you enjoyed it, maybe you could tell someone else about it or leave a review somewhere to help other people find it. My immense thanks to all the people I spoke to for this episode. You can find a complete list of them on my website, womenconscriptionwar.com as well as a bibliography and some relevant images. My thanks also to Sarah Tomasetti, who gave permission to use her mother Glenn Tomasetti's music in this project. It's a moment from her song, The Ballad of William White, that you hear between sections throughout this podcast.